Wars. We're continuing in a series, you can tell from the video, called Magnitude, talking about the attributes of God. So let me pray, and then we're going to open up the scriptures together. Father, thank you that we can call you Father. Thank you that you are our Heavenly Father. Thank you that you bring us into a family. You make us brothers and sisters through our relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your Son. He's the one who makes everything possible in our lives. Apart from him, we can't do anything. I know apart from him, I can't preach this message apart from him uh, you can't you won't open the ears of people to hear and God I pray you'd open our ears I pray when we walk out of this room today that we'd be different people than we were today I pray we wouldn't just check a box and go to church I pray we would relate with you differently as a result of our time together I pray if there's anybody here doesn't have a relationship with you you convict their hearts draw them to you and show them overwhelm them with your love and your goodness and your power to change and Father, I pray for, for those who need to who been walking with you and need to hear words of hope and encouragement, you'd speak that into their lives too. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Like I said, happy Father's Day. Dads, we are, are very thankful for you. Uh, today we're going to talk about the fatherhood of God. And so dads, I don't want you to think in any way I'm diminishing your role. I don't want to let you know I love being a dad. It's one of my greatest joys in life, being a father. Some of you may have seen my social media this week. I know I'm friends with several of you. And when, the day that I went to sit down and work on the message that I'm going to preach to you in just a moment... One of my daughters had actually left a note on my desk, and so I took a picture of it. I was so proud of it, thought I'd show it to you. It says, Happy Father's Day, and there's a little big heart there, and it says, I love you, Daddy. But in the middle, if you can't see that, it says, Sorry, paper, and the spelling makes it even more endearing. She's apologizing to the paper, and she says, If this was important. <laughs> she is the, probably the kindest person I've ever met, which daughter it is. You can guess which daughter it is. They're all kind, so I don't think I'm up. <laughs> but the paper became important because of what she wrote on it. It doesn't matter what I was going to do with the paper before. And I love it. I love being a dad. Some of you are dads, and I know that you love it. It can be a struggle at times. There's lots of weight. There's lots of responsibility. Totally get all that. So what I'm about to say, I don't mean to diminish fatherhood in any way, but I want you to know that fatherhood's under attack. I was reading an article uh, from Psychology Today this week. It's several pages. I just brought some excerpts, some highlights. But if you want to look it up, there's a blog article of it. It's called The Decline of Fatherhood and the Male Identity Crisis. The first paragraph says this, America is rapidly becoming a fatherless society, or perhaps more accurately, an absentee father society. So what's the difference? The importance and influence of fathers and families has been in significant decline since the Industrial Revolution and is now reaching critical proportions. Now, this is not from a biblical perspective. This is psychology today, okay? The solutions that are in here, I'm not endorsing all this, but what they say and the studies they pull from, it's telling that everyone knows this is true. Sociologist from Rutgers says this, after giving an estimate that in a century from now, 50% of kids will have no fathers in the home, he says this, this massive erosion of fatherhood contributes mightily to many of the major social problems of our time. Fatherless children have a risk factor of two to three times that of fathered children for a wide range of negative outcomes, including dropping out of high school, giving birth as a teenager, and becoming a juvenile delinquent. Then there are like pages of stats in the actual article that's on psychology today. They come from, you know, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Census Bureau, all kinds of places. Here's a couple of them. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 72% of adolescent murderers grew up without fathers. 60% of American rapists grew up, same situation, without fathers. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. Fatherless children are dramatically at greater risk for drug, alcohol abuse, mental illness, suicide, poor educational performance, teen pregnancy, being criminals, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. All kinds of stats. Then they cite some other studies that talk about what's happening in our culture and how manhood as a, as a whole is under attack. Men, oftentimes, especially father figures, portrayed in movies, they're idiots. 
That's not, the, that's not what the study said. That's my paraphrase. But they can't take care of themselves, much less contribute to anyone else. And they're the butt of jokes. And so they, they watched commercials. They watched news programming, m- movies. They even did it. There was one study that was on children's books. Dads are almost absent all the time from children's books. The, the message that's being sent is you're irrelevant and incompetent. The idea from our culture, they say in the article, is that the, 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 the role of dad can be filled by anybody. In fact, you don't even need a father. You don't even need a sperm donor any longer if you read the article. So an aunt can do it, a partner can do it, a grandmother can do it, a grandfather can do it, a stepdad can do it, but then the studies show, it ain't working. The last paragraph is what really made me say, I want to read this to you. It's the same sociologist from Rutgers. It says, the crisis of fatherhood then is ultimately a cultural crisis. I disagree with that, but I want you to hear them say that. A sharp decline in the traditional sense of the communal responsibility. He goes on to talk about what he thinks the solution should be. He says this, It therefore follows that to rescue the rescue of the endangered institution of fatherhood, we must, and then I'll let you read the article, I don't agree with their conclusions because they don't have the gospel, and the gospel is ultimately our answers. But it's that phrase, the endangered institution of fatherhood, that I want you to get. And what it made me think of, was a story that you probably saw a year ago. There's so much stuff that goes through the news cycle, you may have forgotten about it. But I'm going to show you a little picture here of this gorilla that was shot at the Cincinnati Zoo. I don't know if you remember, but this little boy fell into the exhibit at the Cincinnati Zoo. He's four years old. This 400-pound gorilla came to him. The zookeepers were calling the gorillas back. Two of them went back. This gorilla went out to the child. We won't show the video because I don't want to get your emails about traumatizing videos being shown at church. But if you watch the news, you've probably seen the video. And what happens is this gorilla grabs this boy by the leg, pulls him through this, the water like a sack of potatoes, and what they do is they shoot the gorilla. Now, here's what, I'm, awesome that the kid's life was saved, stinks that the gorilla was shot, but do you remember what happened afterwards? It was outrage for, like, protesters in the street, people all over the place. I didn't know so many people loved gorillas, to be candid with you. But because the gorilla was an endangered species... There wasn't rejoicing, hey, this kid didn't die. The zookeeper kept having to come out and make statements about why they made the decision they'd make, whether they'd make the decision again the same way. He said, I've seen this gorilla crush a coconut in his hand, one single hand. He's carrying this kid. People, they don't hear it. They were so mad about this endangered species. Now, here, we, we've got here secular studies that talk about the importance of fatherhood, and it's called here an endangered institution of fatherhood. We know this is a problem, but we just still laugh at the dads being the butt of the jokes. It just is what it is. Dads aren't called to lead courageously, we just passively take the role and somebody else will handle it. And here's why I don't think it's just a cultural crisis. I think it's far more diabolical than that. And I don't mean that to diminish your role as father, okay? So I want to be clear about that. Started off talking about, I love my role as father. Fatherhood's important. It is a cultural, culturally significant deal. All the secular sociologists and psychologists will tell you all of that. What I think's happening is way worse because as fatherhood's diminished in our society, we have no concept of what it is to actually relate with God as father. Amen. And so let me be real candid before we jump into our text today. If you look around today, there are people that you saw here last week that aren't here today. Some of them are sick, some of them are traveling, there's legitimate reasons. Some of them aren't here because today is Father's Day. They had a crappy dad, and they don't want to come and hear somebody say some glorified words about fatherhood. And the idea, they think about all the thoughts about their dad, it makes it hard to relate with God as father because they transfer those ideas to God. 
And so that's why some people aren't here. Some people aren't here today because their dad's crappy today, and he won't lead them spiritually. And that's why they're not in church. It's my day. I'm going to go golfing. I'm going to hang out, whatever I'm going to do. That is reality. And then there's some of us brave enough to come, even though our dads were imperfect, and maybe your dad wasn't attentive, and maybe he was abusive, or maybe he was passive, or maybe he was whatever he was, and no matter what, he wasn't perfect. And we still got these ideas that we transfer that thought, like God is like our dad on steroids. Let me tell you something. God's always been father. We're talking about attributes of God in this series. This isn't just a characteristic of God. This is his identity we're talking about today. He was father from all eternity before he ever created Adam. He was existing as father in perfect harmony and relationship with the Trinity, with his son who was never created, who's always existed with the spirit living in community with one another. And the way he wants to relate with you is as father. So what has to happen today, miraculously, for all of us, if God's going to do a work in our hearts, is what we talked about from week one. Some of those ideas we have of dad, passive, abusive, aggressive, not there, distant, whatever the things are, that's got to fade away like the imaginary friend ideas that we have. And we've got to have a greater view of who God is. And so my hope for you and my vision for today's message is this. If you're a father, you'll get a greater picture of your heavenly father, and you'll desire to relate to your kids that way. But for all of us, that God will help us to relate to him better so that we can become a community of people that relate to God as Father and understand what it is to be his child. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, one of three passages of Scripture in the New Testament that call God Abba, Father. It's in Galatians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, we're in Galatians chapter 4. Gentiles eat pork chops, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You can find it towards the back of your Bible. And we're Gentiles, so we can say that, most of us. The book of Galatians, there's a lot that could be said about it, but here's the real summary. There was this guy, his name was Paul. He's called the Apostle Paul. That means apostle means sent one. He's sent because his life was radically transformed by God. Up until the one point in his life, he thought all of relationship with God was based on keeping the rules, doing all the stuff that the Bible told him to do. He was trained in the Bible, knew the Bible super well. Could quote back verses, was very religious. But then God brought a tragedy into his life. And then that what he oftentimes does? He's got to like shake us to get our attention. And he showed him it's not about being religious, it's about a relationship with my son. And he transformed Paul's life. And then he said, You go tell everybody else about this. The same thing he tells, that's the same commission in each one of our lives. You're supposed to tell whoever you come into contact with, whether you work, whether you're, you know, stay-at-home mom, with your kids, with your neighbors, with your with the barista, tell them about the relationship you have with Jesus so that maybe God will transform their lives. That's what Paul does. He goes to this one region of the world, Galatia. So this isn't written to just one church. This is written to multiple churches. And these people, they realize, oh, it's, it's by faith. It's not based on what I do. It's not based on my religion. It's not based on my keeping the rules. It's based on what's been done for me. Amen? Amen. Through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived the life that we couldn't live, the holy life that we talked about in week one. He died the death that we deserve to die. took the wrath of his Father on himself so that you and I could be right with the Father. There's no way to the, where? Not heaven, to the Father, except for through Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but through me. And so he preaches that to the Galatians. They get it. They start a relationship with God by faith. But then Paul leaves. He goes to start some other churches. And some other people come in, and they're quoting the Bible. And here's something you need to know. That any truth that's really going to deceive you, is, it's got a little bit of truth in it. Enough truth to pull you in. But then a little bit of deception to lead you to a path of destruction. And that's what's happened. There's people that come in, they're quoting the Bible, they're using the Bible. They're called Judaizers if you have a study Bible. All it means is they were telling people, hey, that stuff that Paul said, it's true, but there's more to the story than what Paul told you. 
not only do you need to have faith in Jesus, but you also have to become Jewish. You need to get circumcised. You need to obey the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. You need to, to obey certain days and not do certain things. And, and Paul comes back and he says, hey, that's garbage. I, I know they're using the Bible, but here's the deal. You start by faith, you continue by faith. Your relationship with God, it starts by grace alone. You didn't do anything, it's what was done for you. And you live it out by faith. And so then once you place your faith in Jesus, you keep walking by faith with Jesus. So don't fall back into bondage. And we're not delineated by race. He says in in chapter 3 and verse 28, we're not delineated by our jobs. It's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. And so what he's going to say in just a minute, the analogy he's going to use is all about sons. Ladies, I want you to hear this. He's not being chauvinistic. The analogy he's using, only sons received an inheritance. That's why he uses sons here. We're all equal at the cross, so if you want to read in there, sons and daughters, you can read that. But for his audience at this time, if they said daughters, would be like, wait a minute, daughters don't get an inheritance. And so he says sons. But look at what he says. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so he starts in verses 1 and 2, giving an analogy of slavery. And then people who aren't slaves, that legally, factually aren't slaves, but they live like slaves. There's a message there for us. Verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What is that? We'll talk about it in a minute. Verse 4, it's a great Christmas verse. But when the fullness of time had come. And I remember one time we did a series, a Christmas series about God's perfect timing. God's timing is always perfect. Let me tell you whose God's timing didn't seem perfect to. Mary. (laughs) And you know what? It doesn't always seem perfect in our lives either. But God had a perfect plan. When the fullness of time, at exactly the right moment that he planned, it wasn't just like God looked down and was like, now would be a good time to send my son. Things are kind of coming together right now. No, God planned this. He foreordained this. He put all this together. And what did he do? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son. So you got the whole trinity at work here. You've got the father, the son, the spirit. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Verse 7 is really a summary of the whole passage. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's what we see in this passage of Scripture. It's incredible. He tells us here that we can cry out, Abba, but it's not just because we can say words. He's put this spirit in us that our hearts want to cry out, Abba, Father. Now, what we oftentimes don't realize, because we get used to, you know, if you grew up in church, maybe you're taught to pray, our Father who art in heaven. And we think of Father. When I prayed this morning, I probably prayed Father. I didn't even thinking about it. We just pray Father. We talk about God as Father. That was a foreign concept to people at this time. That was thought of as disrespectful. You see, if you read through the Bible, and think about the Old Testament. There's a lot of books in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You got the wisdom literature, you got the Psalms, Proverbs. You get, you get uh, the prophets. You got all these books, historical books in there. Joshua, Samuels, Chronicles, Kings. Out of all of those books, God's mentioned his father 15 times. One, five times. And it's usually impersonal. Like he's the father to a nation kind of talk. When you get to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, on the lips of Jesus alone, God's mentioned his father 65 times. In the book of John, over 100 times, Jesus calls God Father. Father, I only do the work of my, I only do what my father tells me to do. My, my food is to do the will of my father. Every time he prays, except for one time, 
There's one time he doesn't call God Father when he's praying. And that one time actually emphasizes the fatherhood of God. It's when he's on the cross taking on your sins and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's this, Father, I've done everything you told me to do. Our Father who art in heaven, he shows his disciples. This is not a way for you to relate with God. This is the way for you to relate with God. God is Father. He is our Father. And because he's our Father, he gives us ways to relate with him. And we see at least three of them in this passage of Scripture. I'm going to tell you the whole outline right now. It's these three things. He's redeemed us, he's adopted us, and he's made us heirs. And so the first point, based on redemption, is this, that God's the one who set us free. You've been set free. No amen? You've been set free. Some of you are like, wait, I don't know, I was in prison. We'll talk about that. (laughs) Jesus says in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, I came to set the captives free. Read the Gospels. He never leaves a prison break. He came to set us free from sin. He came to set us free from death. He came to set us free from everything that holds us in bondage. And because you're free, you can relate to God as Father. You can relate to God as Father because you've been set free. That's our first point. You can relate to God as Father because you've been set free. But let me say this before we jump back into Galatians. Not everyone can relate to God as Father. Okay, there's a false teaching out there. It's got a little bit of truth in it. The false teaching out there that because God created all of us, we're all God's children, so then God must be our Father. No, no, no. That is not true, by the way. There's a little bit of truth. It is true. God created all of us. He is our maker. That does not mean we can all relate to him as Father. It's only the redeemed. That's the first truth in this passage. It's only the redeemed that can relate to him as Father. What does it mean to be redeemed? It means to be bought out of your slavery. It means a price was paid so that you could be set free. But if you haven't received that payment, then you're not redeemed. And so you say, oh, that guy believes that. That's fine. But I think God just loves everybody. And let me read you. These will be red letters if you're looking at it in your, in your New Testament. John chapter 8, verses 42 and 44. These are from the lips of Jesus. Jesus says this to some religious guys who think the way that you relate with God is by obeying all the rules and by knowing the Bible. And what he says to them is this. If God were your father, you'd love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord. God sent me. I'm submitting to my father. That's what a son does. And then verse 44, he says this to these religious leaders. You're of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. You want to do, well, you want to do sinful stuff. You're just using the Bible to accomplish those things. He's confronting them. You don't really have a relationship with God. You can't call him father. You know, you can say the words. It's not true. And so God's not everyone's father. This is only to the redeemed. And so what Paul is saying is he's writing to these Galatians, he's writing to these redeemed people, and he starts off in verses 1 and 2. He's just given an example. And the example is of a small child. That's important because later when we talk about adoption, when he uses the language for adoption, that's not language for a small child. He's talking about an adopted adult, an adopted son that's fully grown, that has all the rights. And so think about that as we read verses 1 and 2 again. Because I mean that the heir... So you get an inheritance. So factually, you are part of the family. As long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Well, wait a minute. That's not true, Paul. Because he's an heir. And then he goes on and he tells about why it is true. Though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers. He still has rules until the date set by his father. Now, Bible scholars debate. Are they talking about the Roman moving from childhood to adulthood? Are they talking about the Jewish moving from Roman to adulthood? Are they talking about the Greek? And it, you know what the reality is? It doesn't matter. They would all teach the same thing. In Jews, it was at 12 years old. The, the Romans got to set the date for their child. And so it's probably that one from what's said about when the fullness of time came. But the whole point is this. There was a definite period 
for kids at that time, when you move from being a child to being an adult, we, we lack that in America. That's why you've heard of like extended adolescence. You got like 40-year-old men that still live like they're 13 or whatever, you know, staying, living in their mom's basement, eating Cheetos all day, whatever the deal is. If that's you, God still loves you. We're glad you're here. <laughs> time to grow up. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, put away childish things. Live like a man. There was a definite moment for that at that time period. And Paul's alluding to that. And what he's saying is, but until that point, it might be factually true that you're going to get all the property. You're going to get all the responsibility. You're going to have freedom. But right now you don't because when you go back to your passage, you have guardians and managers. Wealthy families would have people that would, would be over the home and they would, they would hire them to be managers and guardians over the kids. And so the, they were actually slaves. And they were actually subjected to the slaves. And so these guardians and managers had no rights, had no privileges. They had a job. And they actually had authority over the children. And so parents, we might not have some of the cultural things to connect with what's happening here in Galatia. But if you're a parent, maybe especially if you have teenagers, if your kids ever said this, I can't wait till I'm an adult. (laughs) Usually that comes in a heated conversation. (laughs) And what they're saying is, I don't want to do what you're telling me to do. And so our kids are a little bit smaller, and they'll, ask, they'll say sometimes, like, well, when I'm an adult, I can do whatever I want. And they mean they want to eat, like, M&Ms for dinner, okay? And they want to stay up till midnight and not wash their hands in the bathroom, which some of you take advantage of, by the way. I've seen. I've been in the bathroom with some of you. Just saying, just saying, be careful where you're shaking hands today. A little pet peeve of mine. But you've got the freedom to do that, apparently. No one in this church is ever going to shake hands again. I just blew it, right? <clears throat> The point that Paul's making is this. It's factually true that you're part of the family. It's factually true that you are a child. It's factually true that you have an inheritance. You're not experiencing that, though. You're living like a slave. And that's how a lot of Christians live. Listen, we're all slaves to something. And you might not like that language. The only way you can experience true freedom, though, is when you become a slave to God. Romans chapter 6 talks about that. So if I just told you that, hey, you need to be a son and not a slave, then I'd be countering the teaching of Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 says we become a slave of God. When you're a slave of God, you get to live the way that you've been designed to live. In real freedom. Freedom to do the things that are actually desired by God, planned for God for your life, and to walk in that truth. But... There's all these other things that enslave us too. Jesus says in the book of Matthew, he says, hey, you can't have two masters. You can have a master, you just can't have two. And he says, you'll love one, despise the other, you'll be devoted to one, and you won't be devoted to the other. You can't, and he uses God and money as the two options. So we know money is one option for things that we can be enslaved to. But what is it that would be our master? And how do you know what that is? And here's, here's let me give you a simple definition. Whatever it is that dictates your decisions, that is your master. So what is it that when you're making decisions, you think, to how, what's it gonna, how's it going to do that? What's it going to do with this? What is it that drives that? Now, there's lots of factors and consequences. That's not what I'm saying. What is it that drives the decision-making? For some people, it might be money. For some people, it might be God. For some people, it might be fear. A lot of people live in fear. Fear of what might happen, fear of what might not happen, all kinds of fears. For some people, since it's Father's Day, let's just be candid about this. Some people, it's dad. And your dad might be dead. And you're still trying to live to please dad. That's, uh, that's a master. Terrible master, but it's a master. Some people, it's guilt. Maybe things that happen. Maybe you're our dad and you didn't do it right, and so you got all this guilt and regret, and so everything you're doing today is driven by the guilt and regret you have in your past. You're enslaved. You're enslaved. Some people, it's anger. Some people, it's accomplishment. There's all kinds of things that we could list. We all have masters. And he says in verse 3 here that we've all had masters. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What in the world are the elementary principles of the world? 
the word, the Greek word here, can be defined multiple ways. One way, it just means row and rank. It could be the basic elements of the law, kind of the ABCs, maybe like the Ten Commandments that's being talked about here. Another proper way that you could define this word is the elements. So like the sun and the moon and the stars. They didn't have like the periodic table and all that stuff. There's like the sun and the moon and the stars. And that would be associated with false gods. So the question then is, is Paul saying that they were enslaved to the law because he's writing to Jews and Gentiles? Or is he saying that they're enslaved to demonic powers? Now, you can say you don't believe in demonic powers. That's fine. It's reality. It's in the, all throughout the Bible. Jesus talks about it. We don't war against flesh and blood. It's all, it's all through the Bible. I believe that the answer is he's talking about both. How do you come up with that? Well, that's what that guy on the stage thinks. Let me tell you how to study your Bibles. A word can mean lots of different things. It's true in English. It's true in Greek. It's true in any language. Context always dictates the actual definition. The way it's being used in a sentence, the way it's being used in, in the context of what is being said. So I can say to you, hey, did you see the trunk? What kind of trunk am I talking about? The trunk on an elephant? Is that what you thought of naturally? The trunk on a car? The trunk you store your valuables in? Whatever, you don't know until you hear the context. So what's the context here for elementary principles? Well, I think it's both. You go down to verse 8. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Idols. False gods, demonic gods. But then you jump down to verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years, probably in allusion to the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. So both things are true. Realize how diabolical this is then. So you're saying that Satan's actually using God's word to deceive people and enslave them. Yep. He comes as an angel of light. And so what I'm saying is this. Not only can fear be your master, or money be your master, or power be your master, or sex be your master, or anger be your master, or guilt be your... We can have a lot of masters, but religion can be your master. Some people that will naturally say, oh, God is my master. Okay, so is it your relationship with God that's by grace through faith, or is it your relationship with God that's based on your performance? Because if it's the latter, you're a slave, and it's not a slave to God. But there's all this Bible stuff that we can put on it. Yep, that's how diabolical it is. And that's what he's telling the Galatians is happening to them. You're enslaved to religion. You think it's your relationship with God. No, 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 you're like the child. The factually, it's true. You're in the family, but you're living like a slave. And then he says, and it's an important word anytime you see it in the Bible, but, and it's actually, you don't see it in the English translation, but it's but God. But God did something here. When the fullness of time comes, in God's perfect timing, here's what God did. He sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? First thing he says, verse 5, to redeem. Let me tell you what to redeem means. It means to set you free. Like I said, the definition of redemption is that you're bought at a price in ancient times. This time it would be to be freed from slavery. Now, most of us, that's a foreign concept here. Especially North Raleigh, Durham area, Cary. Slavery is not a natural thing for us to talk about. It's happening all over our world. I read last week about a guy from Yemen. He was, he was uh, from the UK. He was in Yemen teaching English, and he got taken hostage. For five months, he was held hostage. And then his government paid a ransom. Now, the way the article's written, if you Google this, uh, it says the, the government wouldn't comment about whether they paid the ransom. The government paid the ransom is what you can tell, like if you're just watch, reading this article. And the guy got, he got set free. There was another uh, article that I saw. It was three boys, and it was in Afghanistan. The government wouldn't pay. And so their families had to sell their property and their land and mortgage their stuff so they could get these kids out of, out of being in a hostage situation. Most of us will sit here and think to ourselves, well, I'm not, I'm not being held against my will. 
But if anger is leading your life, if guilt is leading your life, you are enslaved. Fear is leading your life. Anything except for God's leading your life, that's your master, then you are enslaved. And you know what God did? He paid the ransom that only he could pay. Nothing else can set you free. That's why he gives the qualifications for Jesus in this passage. Because he's the only one that could pay your debt. And Jesus, why do you think Jesus says the language that he says in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45? I didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom. He's paying your debt for you. Ransom for many. Who are the many? Anyone who will receive the ransom. So what did he do? Oh, he, was, he became fully man. Now think about what that means. He's born of a woman. If you were here in week one, we entered the throne room of God. In Revelation chapter 4, this emerald rainbow is surrounding the throne that God's dwelling in unapproachable light. He left that place, came to this place. Now we pray over missionaries that go to like Africa or South America. Talk about a trip. He left that place where the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And he came here. This place stinks, by the way, in comparison. And he walked with human flesh. He experienced every temptation that we experience because in order to die for man, he had to become man. And so he's fully God. He didn't become God's son. He was sent by God. He's always been God's son. He's eternal. So he's fully God. That's why when he died for our sins, he could die for many See, if he was just a man, he could only die for one man. But because he was God, he could die for all of us. And he was paying our debt so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be set free. The ultimate picture of redemption in the Old Testament is when the Israelites come walking through the Red Sea. And I was thinking about it this week, and we tell that story, and it's retold and told at the children's church and all that kinds of stuff, and they walk across on dry land. Sometimes we'll get into it, and we'll start thinking, like, what was it like to have fish? Was it like a fish tank, like, swimming up? And I don't think we have any grasp of how terrifying it must have been. Because think about what it must have been like. Like, yeah, I believe, I believe that you parted the sea, God. That's great. But you know what they had to have? More than belief. They had to have faith. Belief and faith aren't the same thing. Demons believe in God. Demons believe that Jesus died on the cross. Demons believe a lot. They have way better theology than most of us. They know truth. They don't have faith. Think about the faith it required to be the first person to step onto that dry ground, not knowing it was dry ground. Think of the faith to be in there. You don't know how the story ends. Maybe you get crushed by these waves. You don't know it's just the Egyptians. It took faith any time that we take a step of faith, it seems like risk from our perspective. When we read about it in the Bible, it's like, that's awesome. Yeah, I'd have done that too. It's great. It's scary. See, to receive the ransom, you have to, you have to live by faith. Take a step of faith and stop trusting in what you've done and trust in what's been done for you by Jesus Christ. And then you receive redemption. Then you can call God Father. Then you're set free. Amen? Anybody here free? Good. I'm sorry if you're not. You can be today. You know what it says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1? It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And what he's saying is don't live like verses 1 and 2. If you've been set free, then live like a free person. And what does a free person live like? It gets better than just you have freedom. A free person lives like they're in the family. And that's our second point. You can relate to God as Father because not only have you been set free, you've been made family. So you look at the next part of verse 5. He talks about redemption, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You become a son. You're adopted into the family. That payment that was made, it's more than just a transaction. He wants to be family with you. And here's where many of us struggle with God as Father. 
And if you don't understand the doctrine of adoption, you cannot understand what it is to relate to God as Father. And so you, you look at the, this, I would say, you, this, is the, this is an element of the gospel. Some people think that the gospel is just that Jesus died for your sins and you can be forgiven and one day you're going to spend eternity in heaven. Let me tell you something, you don't understand the, the layers of the gospel. There are layers and layers of the gospel. And the more and more you dig into the gospel, the more beautiful it becomes and the greater your relationship with God becomes. You can't understand what it is to have God as Father if you don't understand the doctrine of adoption. In fact, some people have even said it's more important than the doctrine of justification. But the doctrine of justification is primary. Let me read you an extended quote by a guy named J.I. Packer. He wrote it in this book called Knowing God. A great book. You should check it out. But he says this, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. This may cause the raising of eyebrows, for justification is the gift of God on which since Luther... It's a long time ago for us. Evangelicals, that's us, have laid the greatest stress. And we're accustomed to say almost without thinking that free justification is God's supreme blessing to us sinners. And so hopefully, if you're a theologue, you're a theologian, you think through these things, maybe you've been to seminary or whatever, now I've got your attention. Are you saying something more important than justification? We're going to pull you off that stage, you heretic. <laughs> J.F. Packer, I'm just reading a quote. Listen. Nonetheless, careful thought will show us the truth of the statement we've just made. The justification by which we mean, here's what justification is, God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. That's not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. If that's you... The invitation at the end of this message for you is going to be to trust Jesus as your Savior. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our Maker. So we need forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. That's the first step. And this, the gospel offers us because it offers us, any, it offers us anything else. Any, and look what he says next. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher. Because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. So here's what he's saying. Justification is judicial language. You read the book of Romans. The whole first part of the book of Romans is about we're terrible. None of us got a shot. All of us can look at creation, can tell there's a creator. Every single one of us throughout human history, from Adam to me and you to the cutest baby in our nursery, choose creation over the creator. We all choose to worship something other than God. We all want to worship. God's made us worshipers. And then it says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But the gift of God is because of what Christ did, not because of what you did. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. When you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, boom, justified. It's stamped. You're declared innocent. That's judicial language. It's amazing. It's our greatest need. But it gets better. Do you understand the cost that was paid for you? You've been redeemed. Another layer of the gospel. Redemption. Your debt was paid. But that's still a transaction. So when you have a transaction, we have lots of transactions in our culture. Even if you just shop at Amazon. Even if you like Whole Foods this week, apparently. If you go to lunch today afterwards, you go to Red Robin, you go to Payway, wherever you go. Transaction. It doesn't mean you have a relationship with the waiter or waitress. It doesn't mean you have a relationship with the owner of that business. You have a transaction. Judge, you can be grateful to a judge. You can be thankful for a transaction. But that's not a relationship. See, adoption is talking about a relationship. With adoption, it's as though the judge 
decided out of his own wallet to pay the debt, redemption, and he got up from behind his bench and he came down and he said, not only are you forgiven, not only is the debt paid, but I want you to come home and be my child. You live in my house. I'm going to write you into my will. You get my name. I want a relationship with you. That's adoption. Adoption is incredibly costly. In fact, we know that, the earthly picture of adoption. One of the, one of the children that were uh, dedicated today, the Williamson son, adopted from overseas. That, that's expensive. Anybody who's thinking about adoption, I don't want to fool you with this. It costs tens of thousands of dollars. It's one of the reasons why we as a church have a, a fund that we try to help. People that are members of our church that want to adopt, we want to help you in that process. And so you can let us know if you're thinking about that. But can you imagine the cost there was by the father for your adoption? Like imagine that you're one of those families. Imagine you're the Williamsons. You travel overseas. You go to a foreign country and you're going to adopt a child. You know you got to pay for plane tickets. You know passports and shots and like all that stuff and the paperwork for that country. Thousands of dollars. But what if you got there and they said to you, and the Williamsons already have biological children. What if they said to you, you have to give us your biological child. And we're going to march them through the streets. We're going to strip them naked. We're going to beat them. We're going to mock them. Then we're going to crucify them in front of everybody. Then you can have the other child. Did you do that? Don't even answer. God did that, and that wasn't plan B. God's plan was always, from the beginning, his plan was not that he would create the world and that Adam would have kids and there'd be a bunch of perfect children. His plan always was to adopt you into his family. His plan always was that we would sin, we'd fall short of his glory, that his glory would be revealed as he'd send his son, his son would be murdered, that would pay the debt, that would redeem us, and he'd bring us into a relationship with him. You don't think that's true? Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It's always been his plan to bring you into right relationship with him through adopting you so you can have relationship with him. Here's the problem. Many of us, we trust Jesus as Savior. We live like the Galatians, verses 1 and 2. Legally, it's true. We understand redemption. We know the facts of the gospel, but we don't relate to God because we're enslaved. We're in bondage to these guardians and managers, fear, guilt, anger, even religion. And what many of us do is we can't receive love. Sometimes it's because of our fault, because of what's happening in culture. We talk about God as Father. Sometimes we transfer the junk from our dad onto God as Father. Here's one of these moments where something miraculous has to happen in our hearts right now. It's what we talked about in week one when I said that I hope through this series that some of us, the visions that we have of God and the God that we created like an imaginary friend start to fade away and we see the one true God. Because God, he, he is an attentive God. He is an engaged God. He is a pursuing God. He's not abusive. He's not passive. He's there. He disciplines you. He disciplines because he loves you. He will allow hurt to come into your life. He's not going to harm you, though. See, there's a difference between hurt and harm. He's not going to harm you. He loves you. He's got a good plan for you. There will be pain. In this world, you will have trouble. And all of that's even designed for your good. That's how far his wisdom, his justice, his, his infinite knowledge is above our, our knowledge. That he's even junk in our lives as part of his good and perfect plan for our lives. That he'd use even the murder of his son, the greatest sin in all of human history, for the greatest good in your life. And so it goes back to what Adam, our worship pastor, was saying earlier. Do we trust that he's good? And he is. 
He's engaged. He was engaged in the plan of redemption from before you ever even existed. And he's been pursuing you, coming after you. Every time you turn back to him, he takes you back. It's like, have you seen the commercials? Uh, I think it's LifeLock that's out there. Well, they'll, they'll talk about identity theft. And what they say is that we're not just a monitoring company. And so the analogies are like, they'll have a, somebody sitting in a dentist chair. And they'll say, you got a lot. You need a root canal. And it's like, well, how much does that cost? Well, I don't do them. I'm just a dental monitor. <laughs> Or I think the most recent one that I've seen is a bank robbery and the bank's being robbed and there's a guy that's got all these security clothes on and like some woman falls on the ground and is like, we're being robbed, do something. He's like, I'm just a security monitor. You're being robbed. Thanks. Some of us think God's like that in his all-knowingness. He knows what's going on in our lives. He's just inattentive. You know where you get that? From a messed up dad who maybe, was a, maybe he knew, but he's just disengaged. That is not God your father. He's been coming after you, been pursuing you, has a plan for you, is attentive, is engaged, is gracious, is loving, is all-knowing, is sovereignly in control, even of the junk that's happened in your life, and even that was for your good. Can you trust him? He's good. But do you believe that is a big question that Adam asked earlier. Do you believe that he's good? Because it's only by believing that he's good that you can step into the Red Sea. It's only by believing that he's good that you can walk by faith. It's only by believing it's good that you think that he's worthy of being trusted. Think of the story in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son. Oftentimes we tell that story. It's such a great demonstration of grace. There's this guy, he goes, he asks for his dad's inheritance, says, I want all the money. And he takes it out and he squanders it. Prostitutes, wild living, all this stuff. And then he realizes, you know what? I'd be better off being a slave at my father's place than doing this. And so he goes back to his dad and he's going to beg for mercy. He's going to repent. And then you see this father. It's a picture of our heavenly father. comes running towards him embraces him, then says, throw, let's throw a party. Let's kill the fattened calf. We got, my son's come home. And then there's an older brother. And the older brother is the key to understanding the story. It's actually who Jesus is teaching to in that passage is the older brother type from the very beginning of chapter 15. And the older brother's upset. He won't go into the party. So he's outside pouting. You've seen that. It's a spirit of entitlement. And the father comes out for him because that's how our father is. And he says, hey, I've, I've obeyed all the commands. I've done everything you've ever asked me to do. And you never killed the fattened calf for me. You know what the dad says? All my stuff is yours. You can have anything you want anytime you want. My son was lost. Now he's here. He's dead. Now he's alive. We're throwing a party. It's not because of what he's done. It's because he's my son. And you're my son too. Here's the problem. You're enslaved to the bondage of your religion. It's because you want glory. It's because you want to get the credit for the obedience that you have. It's your, you're living in Romans chapter 1, but you are my son. And you know why I love you? It's not because you obey. It's not because you sinned. It's not because you came home. It's not because you always did the commands. It's because you're my son. That's what it is to relate to God as father. Because you're his son, because you're his daughter, that's why he loves you. Because he chose you, that's why he loves you. Can you relate to him like that? Not based on your performance, not based on your fear, not based on whatever it is that might be holding you in bondage, but because he's your father. You've been set free. Receive the love. The fact that you've been set free means that anything that's a blockage to his love has been removed. So stop living in verses 1 and 2 as if, oh, it's true, I just don't experience it. Because the last part of the verse tells us how to experience it. Because you've received an inheritance. You've been made an heir. You can relate to God as father. You've been made an heir. Let me read you verses six and seven again. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And some preachers will make that romantic, like it's daddy. It's not daddy. It's a statement of dependence. It's a statement of intimacy. Adult children would use it. It's on the lips of Jesus. You know what's on the lips of Jesus? It's on the lips of Jesus in Mark chapter 14 when he says, Abba, Father. If there's any other way, take this cup from me. 
Not my will, but yours. Do you know what he's saying? You're good. I trust you. I don't want it to go like this, but I trust you. Abba, Father. What? What's going on here? So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you've been redeemed, if you're part of the family, if you've been set free, if you're adopted into his family, then you have an inheritance. And I could talk to you all day long about the inheritance that you have. It's every promise that's in the scriptures. Romans chapter 8 and verse 32 says, if he'll give his son for you, then he'll, every answer to his promises is yes in Christ Jesus, then he's not going to spare anything for you. If he's going to give his son, he'll give it all to you. And so he gives us everything we need for life and godliness. He gives us a new identity. We're sons and daughters of the king. He gives us grace. He gives us mercy. He gives us power. He gives us peace. He gives us redemption. He gives us adoption. He gives us all this stuff. But just in this passage, what does he give us? Look in the passage. His spirit. See, this is where the earthly adoption analogy fails. Because as an earthly father who adopts a child, you can't insert your DNA into that child. God doesn't just give us his stuff. He gives us himself. He gives us the Holy Spirit of God to live then within us. You are my son, and you know how we see it? My spirit lives in you. It's not just that you get to say the words, Abba. It's that your heart cries out, Abba. Is that true of you? You want to know? The Galatians are wondering whether they're really children of God or not. And you want to know whether you're really a child of God? Does your heart cry out, Father? Or is it just a title of God? Like there's this God out there, we kind of throw the title Father over. No, he is Father, has always been Father, and wants to relate with you as Father. Here's the problem for us. Many of us, we have this incredible inheritance, but we live like it's not true. We live in verses 1 and 2. I read a story this week. A guy named Thomas Martinez. You can Google it. He had a $6 million inheritance, but he's a homeless man. Drug problems, alcohol problems. When the police came looking for him to tell him about his inheritance, he fled they still haven't been able to give him his inheritance. So here's what's happened. Technically, the guy's a millionaire. But he lives like a bum. He doesn't realize all that's his. That's how many Christians live. Enslaved. Still like a child. No, when you're adopted, you're adopted not as a baby. You're adopted as full rights. Whether it's Jewish at 12, whether it's Roman and dad decides, let me tell you, as an American, you're adopt- you get brought into the family of God. You've got all the rights and privileges. You don't have to live the Christian life for a certain amount of time. You start by faith. You continue by faith. Don't let somebody fool you and cut you off of something else. What chapter 3 says, bewitch you. Don't be deceived. A little bit of deception will ruin the truth. It's by grace through faith. Fathers, the challenge to you is this. Will you live in relationship with your heavenly father in a way that reflects it to your children? You can't give what you haven't received. You receive grace, give grace. You receive adoption, treat them like a child in your faith. Give them all the rights. Everything you have is there. You receive freedom, show them freedom. Now you discipline. Our, our father disciplines us. You know why? Because he loves us. You know that God has a plan for them. Guide them and direct them in that plan. That's the challenge to you, fathers. And I say this, if you want to be one of those fathers, I'm going to invite you in just a second to come up here to the front. I want to pray a prayer over you. And so if you're a father, would you, can you imagine if as a church, think about the early church in Acts 2, and they're just learning what it is to relate to God as Father. This whole concept is new to them. And then these people, and it changes the world. You want to make a difference in our culture? Well, we can't just complain and cry about how commercials are made. Live it out. And so if you want to be a dad that wants to live that out, then I'm going to invite you to come up here and kneel down at the stage, and I'm going to pray a prayer over you just as we dedicated those children earlier today and dedicate you to the Lord. But some of you, the message you need to hear is you need to start a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for through him. It's not by being baptized. It's not by being dedicated. It's not by praying some prayer. And if you need to do that, I challenge you to place your faith in Jesus right now. And so the band's going to come. If you're a father, you come on up here. 
and just kneel down at the front. You don't, don't come just because other fathers are coming, but if you're a father who wants to reflect your heavenly father to your kids, then you come up here. And you make yourself accountable, in a sense, by stepping up here because the church can see who, who comes up here. But I don't want you to come just because other dads come. You understand what I'm saying? No, no, no pressure, no manipulation in any of that stuff. But if you need to trust Jesus as your savior, whether you're a dad, whether you're a daughter, whether you just came randomly in here today, here's the deal. That's the most important thing you can do right now. Before you talk about how you relate with God, you have to have a relationship with God. And that happens only because of what Jesus Christ did for you. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you deserve to die. If you want to trust Jesus as your Savior, you admit your sin. That's not a huge admission. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You admit your sin before God and ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. To be Lord means he's boss. He's in church. And if you want to do that, will you pray with me right now? Will you pray this? Father God, I come before you. I acknowledge my sin before you. And I have a need. I can't justify myself anymore, just like we said earlier at the beginning of the service. I have no excuses for my sin. I've sinned against you, and it's wrong. And acknowledge your sin before him in your heart. And ask Jesus to be your Savior. Ask Jesus to be your Lord. And Father, I pray for these dads that are up here, kneeling before your throne, really. I know we're here at the stage, and we call it an altar, but, but Father, they're kneeling before you. And I pray as you look at, at each one of us as fathers, that your face would shine upon us, meaning your presence would be here with us, that you would empower us through your spirit. I pray that there wouldn't be a dad here who doesn't know your son Jesus is Savior. I pray that if there is, you convict their hearts. They wouldn't go through some motions or because their wife told them to come up here or any of that garbage. God, I pray that you would work in their hearts to have a desire for you, to taste and see that you are good, to experience you, that we experience you through your spirit. And they would walk by your spirit, knowing that your spirit leads us only to good places, dangerous places, Places that may hurt, but good places. And that you grow our trust for you. Father, I pray for each one of these dads that you'd empower them. That you'd empower them to be the dads you desire for them to be. That you'd give them the humility that when they blow it, they would repent before their family, before their kids. They would acknowledge their wrongs and ultimately even in their weaknesses point, point people to you. I pray you give them a boldness of the gospel. I pray that you give them a love for your word. I pray you give them an empowerment from your spirit. Thank you for the dads in our church. I pray that our church would be a church where men would be men. That we would man up, take our responsibilities, and live boldly for the gospel. That we wouldn't be passive. That we'd be courageous in the way that we lead. That we'd be humble. And it's only because of you that we can do it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.